1 Corinthians chapter 2, for those of you who are relatively new to Lakeview College Ministry, I am not Kevin Webb. You may have been hearing that name. That's the college pastor. Why they let me in, but I hang out with the youths. Uh, so yeah, my name is Aaron Wine. Glad that I am here. Glad that I get to spend some time with you tonight thinking about God's Word, thinking about Revelation, not the book. I mean, yes, the book's important, but we're going to speak more specifically tonight about divine revelation. Divine revelation. We believe that God, the God of the universe, the one who created all things by the word of his power, the one who existed from eternity to eternity, the one who is triune as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has revealed himself to his creation. Now, we got to start at the front end by just admitting and believing that that revelation of God to his creation was not required. There's no obligation that God has to reveal himself to his creation. It is all a work out of love and abundant joy because God's creation is not fulfilling some kind of lack in him. Therefore, he's not subservient to his creation. And therefore, we recognize all revelation of God as a work of love and a work of joy is also a work of grace. So when we talk about knowing God, when we talk about what it means to hear his word or to see him through the beauties and glories of his creation, we recognize that all we are talking about is a work of grace, something that is not owed to us, but is something that is freely given. We need to start there because we need to recognize that revelation is something that we receive, and it's something that we receive not on our terms, but on God's terms. Now, why is that necessary for us to know? It's necessary because we believe that God is incomprehensible. You go read a fancy systematic theology book or a book on the doctrine of God, and one of the attributes you'll find listed under that doctrine is the incomprehensibility of God. Apart from His moving towards you and me and revealing Himself to us, we will not and we cannot know Him. So this semester, you guys are going to be thinking about and studying with Kevin the doctrine of Scripture, and particularly the various attributes of Scripture, things like its inerrancy and its sufficiency and its authority and its necessity, and all of those things are vitally important. But if we don't have a, a concept or a grasp of what revelation is, then we won't really get to grasp what's downstream when we think about the attributes of Scripture. So tonight we get to talk about divine revelation. It's a divine condescension. For the sake of us as creatures to truly know God who, has, who is the one who made them. Now the re reality is you and I know people who have thoughts about God. Actually, everyone that you have ever met has thoughts about God. They may be thoughts that are right. They may be thoughts that are wrong. They may be thoughts about His existence. They may be thoughts about His lack of existence. Everyone has thoughts about God. But in our own fallen state, we will not stumble upon the truth of God 
apart from His gracious work. As Carl Henry, an important 20th century theologian, once wrote, all merely human affirmations about God curl into a question mark. On our own, in our own capacities, in our own powers, we will not land at the truth. So I want to give you a definition of revelation that we'll keep in mind tonight, and then we'll spend some time thinking about general revelation, or the revelation available to all people, and then special revelation, the revelation that is specifically located in the Word of God. And then finally, we'll think about the work of the Spirit of God to illuminate our hearts and minds to both believe that Word and apply that Word. I think that's going to be a good ground for us to stand on as you walk with Kevin this semester thinking about the doctrine of Scripture. Here's the definition of revelation. This is from Robert Yarbrough. I'm not this smart. Revelation is the disclosure by God of truths at which people could not arrive without divine initiative and enabling. I'm going to say that one more time. Revelation is the disclosure by God of truths at which people could not arrive without divine initiative and enabling. You should be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 10 through 16. And I don't normally do this. Normally when you go to Lakeview and you listen to us preach the Word of God, we're going verse by verse through a book of the Bible or through a section of Scripture. But by virtue of the topic that we're talking about, we're going to be bouncing around tonight. So you probably will not keep up, and that's fine. Um, but just keep in mind that we're going to be moving kind of at a quick pace. But I do want us to just put our eyes on this text because I think it kind of encapsulates what we're trying to think about tonight. So 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 10. Before that, Paul is talking about wisdom that's been received by the Spirit of the gospel, the truth of the gospel that was revealed to some, but not to the rulers of this age. They didn't understand it. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So let's pray. And then we will dive into our topic this evening. Lord God in heaven, we are grateful that we get the opportunity to gather together as the people of God, 
united in a common faith, submitted to a common authority, united in a common pursuit. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you more clearly so that we might love you more dearly and follow you more faithfully. And there may be among our midst neighbors, friends, loved ones who may know things about you, Lord, but they have not yet known you. And I pray that they might see tonight that the path to the knowledge of God is through your revelation. It's through your word. It's through the word inspired by the Spirit of God. It's through the word incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. So by your grace and your good providence and your sovereign power, we pray that tonight would be the night that we behold your glory that we see the beauty of divine revelation, that we begin to behold it as the treasure that it is, that we might use it wisely and well, now and forevermore. So be with us tonight by your Spirit. Speak through me the power and clarity and the authority of Scripture. Mold us and shape us by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes this morning or this evening, there will be nothing on the screen and you'll just have to figure it out. Uh, you know, this, this, you're in college now, so I guess you just have to take your own notes. Uh, but if you're taking notes, I'll go ahead and give you some, some points to make. And the first one will be general revelation. This is what we're going to talk about first. General revelation. It's the stuff we all get. Uh, general revelation is the revelation of God through, as some old Baptist said in their Baptist catechism 400 some odd years ago, the light of nature in man and the works of God. So when we think about the capacities that we have to reason, as we look at the world around us, we come into contact with revelation of God. We all have access to it, and from it, we can learn a lot. So let me just give you a couple of things that we get by looking around at the world and seeing what is revealed there about God. First, creation reveals a creator. You look around at the world and you recognize very clearly if you're honest with yourself, and, and I know someone who's honest with himself because he's my son, he's two and a half, he'll be three in October, he doesn't know how to like make himself seem smarter, right? He looks up at the world, he looks up at the stars, he looks up at the, the, the night sky and he goes, man, this is amazing. I'm like, Abe, who made that? Oh, God made that, right? There's something in him that knows that, that the world around him didn't just pop out of nowhere, it was made. God is powerful. The fact of creation itself leaves us stunned at the greatness of a creator. There's undeniable and unapproachable power. Romans chapter 1, especially verse 20, gives us this idea that when we perceive creation, we see the power and the majesty of God. Here's something else. God is one. In Acts chapter 17, You can read Paul talking to the the faithful, zealous worshipers in the Areopagus, thinking about what it means to know the unknown God. And he tells them, you know that God is one. The greatness that made the whole world is supreme, and He is a singular being. Not only that, God is wise. Psalm 104 tells us that the Great One has intelligence that organizes the universe wisely and with purpose. And we can see that in the order of creation. Things work in the world that we live in. 
right? The laws of physics are laws. So when I stand here, I can trust that I'm not going to shoot off into space. Why? Because the, the creation that I exist in has order and organization and consistency. Those things aren't necessary. Not only is God wise, He's good. The orderliness of creation and its end, its telos, its purpose, demands that the Creator's intentions are good. He does good for everyone, but the fact of concepts like justice or restoration in our societies demand moral absolutes that find their source in God. If you and I can look around at the world and see something heinous going on and naturally feel something up well up in us that says, that's not right, well, that came from somewhere. We see injustice around us and, and feel the unrighteousness that we witness. This is general revelation. There is a God who made this world, who's given you eyes to see, at least in some capacity, that what you're looking at is not as it should be. Not only is He wise and good, He's present. Acts 17 verse 24 tells us that He is distinct from and yet very near to His creation. He's also to be worshipped. Paul says in Romans 1.25 that this God who is worthy of worship nonetheless does not receive worship because we've exchanged the glory of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the Creator who ought to be praised. And just a few verses before that in Romans 1.18, we realize that this God who is wise and powerful and good and present is also just. And His righteousness will not be mocked. So that's looking at the world. This general revelation, we have access to it. Everyone has access to it. But not only do we have access to the world, we have access to our minds. Our capacity to reason demands a mind behind it. We can see things not just as just and unjust, but as beautiful. And good. That comes from somewhere. We can understand logic and interpret uh, the creation in some real, true ways. Psalm 19, one of my favorite things, when I was a college student, just learned to make this kind of this natural response and trigger of my heart. That when I look out at the sky first thing in the morning, um, I don't know that, I guess I can say now that I like to run. And to run these days, if you like to run, you're running before the sun gets up or you will melt or you just have to find somewhere to go inside, which just sounds like an awful thing to do, right? Because at least if you're running outside, you're going somewhere. But when I look out at the night sky, because it's still dark and the stars are still out, and I see the crack of dawn, the, the light coming out over the tree line near my home, Psalm 19, verse 1, just echoes in my mind. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim His handiwork. I want that to be this natural response of my heart. That when I see the skies, I see the glory of God at work. We also have a desire to understand our purpose. Solomon writes this about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. That God has put eternity into the hearts of mankind. That, that every one of us feels this, this innate sense. We'll talk about this in just a moment. But we have this sense and desire that there's something greater than us. There's something greater than this that we're moving towards. But we also recognize in our reasoning, in our minds, that we are unable to attain goodness as we might expect to find in a creator. Not only that, but common grace. 
the, the, the fact that we all can live in a society and not eat each other alive leads to the sustainability of human civilization. General revelation has very good benefits. So not only do we have creation, not only do we have reason, we also have this innate sense I mentioned just a moment ago. John Calvin says that because of this innate sense, we look at creation as a theater. And what's playing at this theater is the glory of God. When I look at the world, I'm looking at a theater for God's glory. And in this creation, rational creatures like you and me have this innate sense of God. It's seen most clearly in the sheer fact of human history's grasping towards divinity generation after generation by way of religion. So so you go to any people group in the world, various levels of access to technology and civilization and modernization and industrialization and historic whatevers, and you ask them what their society is like, you should expect to find worship somewhere. They all, all of us have this sense in us that there's something worthy of my honor and my worship and my praise, and it's not me. It's something outside of me. So general revelation is pretty good. We get a lot of ground covered with general revelation. God's revealed himself in pretty remarkable ways that we all can access, that we all can see, that we all can appreciate, and yet... General revelation is sufficient not to save us, but to condemn us. General revelation lets us know with absolute clarity that we stand before God guilty. Pastor Brian, in my systematic class years ago, said this, he said, we cannot escape God. Outside of us, the created order screams at us. And inside our own heads, our conscience will not give us any rest. So we need something more. If our souls are to be made right with this creator that we've met, we need something more. We need a better Word. We need special revelation. So we've talked about general revelation. Let's talk about special revelation. The good news of the God of Scripture is that God speaks. He speaks. He doesn't leave Himself without a witness. God gives us His Word to see not just that He exists, but who He is. The Bible is a window through which you and I might look to see God. And we see God most clearly in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, it says that we receive the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of Him. That is, Self-revelation of God is the primary reason for Scripture. So so you and I have this book in front of us, this Bible in front of us. 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, written over 1,500 some odd years, 
40 some odd different authors, three different languages, many different cultures, many different contexts, and it has one primary purpose. And it's not so that you might nail ancient Near Eastern dynasty generational gaps. And it's not so that you might get really good at memorizing Mosaic law customs. And it's not so that you might recognize even the the crazy, dramatic expansion of the church. Those things are there, and they are beneficial. But the primary reason you have this book is to know God. And when I say know God, I don't mean extrinsic, mere propositional factoids that you can list out on a sheet of paper. I mean know him like you know a friend. My my concern in a church like Lakeview, and I love Lakeview. This is my 10th year here, my 7th year as one of the pastors on staff. I think we do a lot of things really well. And I'm not saying that we intend to do this, but one of the byproducts of being in a church like Lakeview that is theologically rigorous, doctrinally sound, is that you and I might dupe ourselves into thinking that intimacy with God is the same as having a long list of facts about Him. And that is not true. Because I know who has longer lists of facts about God than any of us. James tells us, the demons know about God. They believe in Him, and they shudder. I mean, they existed in His presence in heaven. You think you have better theology than them? You don't. I don't. And this side of heaven, we won't. But the reality is, is that you and I might grow in this kind of extrinsic, exterior, outside, factoid knowledge of God and never broach the subject of, have I met Him? And the purpose of Scripture is for you to meet Him. Now yes, if you don't have those facts and knowledge, then it's going to be really apparent that you don't know Him. It would be like if I talked to you about my wife. Maybe some of you have met her. Her name is Whitney. And she has beautiful blonde hair and stunning blue eyes. And she's six foot three and she plays volleyball. And those of you who know my wife know that I have not told you anything true about her. Right? She is not six feet tall. She has brown hair. She has brown eyes. She is wonderful. And her name is Whitley. Although there are still people like you who call her Whitney. And we give them grace. I have to have that kind of knowledge, right? If I don't have that kind of knowledge, then I'm, I'm betraying my relational knowledge with this person, the person that I love, this person that I care for. So don't hear me say that I'm divorcing these two kinds of knowledge. What I'm saying is special revelation is not primarily for you to grow in your intellect. It's for you to grow in your communion. Your intellect will grow. That, that's, that's coming. That's going to that's gonna be a wonderful benefit and side, pro, side product. But the purpose is for you to know God. And in John chapter 16, Jesus tells the apostles that the Spirit will lead them into all truth. 
that these messengers will be the ones to write down God's revelation of Himself in Christ for us, for the church. Now, this special revelation was progressive. It began in the Garden of Eden. right? Adam and Eve met God. They heard Him speak. They walked with Him in the cool of the day. They were not, as far as I can tell, robust Trinitarians. They didn't have consubstantiality down in their brains, but they heard Him speak, and they received a promise, and they believed His Word. And that belief in that Word that was revealed was sufficient for that moment. But over time, more revelation comes out. Moses begins to write these events down, and that writing was the beginning of Holy Scripture. The Word of God inspired Over time, more revelation was added. More was revealed. And the response to that revelation, to the God who was revealed in it, leads to life and salvation. And the pinnacle of special revelation is none other than Jesus Christ. This is how the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, the writer says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. The Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, is revealed to us by the Spirit, who has inspired authors to write of Him. So the Word of God inspired is this Bible, this book that we have in front of us. So when we think about what we need to be saved, what we need for life and godliness, what we need to actually have our souls made right with that Creator that we've met through general revelation, we think of the Word of God and what it reveals to us. Herman Bovink says of general revelation that it's able to instill fear, but not love. And what you need for love is special revelation. You need to know this God. You need to meet Him. Because you learn in places like 1 John that this God is love. And that He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. You learn from this Word who this God is, what He's like, what He's done, what He offers. And the good news of the Gospel and the explicit and exclusive news of the gospel is found in Peter or in Acts chapter 4 when Peter says in verse 12 there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved general revelation gives us existence it gives us power it gives us wisdom it does not give us a name Special revelation, the Word of God, reveals His name. So this is why the Bible is vital for your life. Because in it, we read of the God who made us. The God who makes a way for sinners to be saved. And of a God who wants to be known. And in reading God's Word, we come into contact with the presence of God Himself. Again, we go to the Bible to know God. That leads us to the final point of tonight. That is the witness and illumination of the Spirit. 
The Spirit Himself, the one who inspired Scripture, is Himself also the witness of Scripture. So you read this book, you read these verses and these chapters and these passages, and you read about these these stories and these lists and these narratives and these prophecies and these revelations, and you think, what is going on? And do I believe that it's true? Listen to John Calvin say this. He says, the testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of Himself in His Word, so also the Word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it's sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what has been divinely commanded. Here's Calvin's point. Calvin isn't anti-rational. He's not telling you to check your brain in at the door. He's saying as you wrestle with this word and you try to come to a conviction about whether or not this book is saying true things, the reality is you and I will never convince ourselves of its truthfulness. And you, in your own power, in your own strength, do not have the capacity to convince or persuade another person of its truthfulness. There is only one person who does that, and he is the Holy Spirit. And that's really good news for us. Because when the Word goes forth, the Spirit goes with it. And when you and I read the Bible, we are reading the Bible in the presence of the one who wrote it. And that same Spirit who wrote this Word down authenticates that Word to our heart. That happened to each one of you who proclaims to be a follower of Jesus because I imagine and I assume for the majority of us in the room, your faith in Jesus that came by hearing did not happen the first time you heard it. Now you heard the gospel and then you heard it again and then you heard it again and then you read the Bible and then you read the Bible some more and then you read the Bible some more and then one day, your heart was turned. One day, your mind said, this book that I'm reading is true. What happened there? I believe, I think Scripture attests to this, I think the church is pretty much in concert on this. It's the Spirit of God at work in your life to open your eyes and as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 18, enlighten your heart. He is the witness of the truth, and His witness is effective. Now, have you ever thought about what God does when you read your Bible now? Like now that you're a believer, now that you're a follower of Christ, now that you've repented of your sin, put your faith in Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for sinners like you and me, who rose from the dead. When you open up your Bible with the indwelling Spirit within you, what goes on? When you meet together for small groups, maybe at MCGs or around your table after Kevin gives you about five minutes left to talk about it. 
when you study Scripture with your brothers and sisters, or even right now, as we've been singing the Word and remembering the Word and hearing the Word preached and we see the Word on Sundays and baptism and the Lord's Supper, what is God doing? All of that is answered in the doctrine of illumination. It's the work of the Holy Trinity enlightening believers to behold the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, moving us closer into the divine life and providing greater vision to perceive the Scriptures rightly and to live accordingly. The goal of illumination is to see God. I told you, you you and I were given special revelation so that we might know Him. Well, the goal of illumination is that that Word would be effective in your life and mine. To behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You'll hear from Kevin later in the semester on the inspiration of Scripture. And I've, I've mentioned it a little bit tonight. But for now, it's vital for us to realize that the Spirit of God illumines what He inspires. That is, He shines a light on what He has written. God will not, in other words, lead you contrary to His Word ever. It is not in His nature to lead you away from the Word that He has spoken. It's not in His nature to lead you into confusion where His Word promises order. Scripture is carried by the Spirit to always be effective. What you and I need to grapple with is that the effectiveness of the Word of God is not always what we expect. So when you go share the gospel with a friend in class, and you share Christ with them, and you quote Scripture to them, and they respond in aloofness or anger or resentment, or disagreement, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. As a popular Puritan quote says, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. That same Word is always doing something. And it is always effective in what it intends to do. The reality is, for you and me as followers of Jesus who are carrying this word inspired by the Spirit, you and I do not get to decide what the intention of the word is. The one who gets to decide the intention of that word is its author. And the Spirit of God is at work through His word that is living and active. The reality is, We do things with words. So so I'll just give you you an example. Let's say my son, this is like, this is a complete hypothetical. It's like it's never happened before. Let's say my son is standing on our coffee table about to jump on our dog, Gray, like he's the rock on the corner of WWE Raw, right? Like, looking down, hinging his hips, ready to strike, right? Now, I'm going to say something to my son 
I could say a lot of things to my son. I could say, son, get down from the table now. And what I'm saying communicates something to my son. What do you think that communicates? Sometimes that communicates to my son, body slam that dog, son. Right? That might be the result of my word, but it was not the intent of my word, right? So, so here's, here's the point. I use my words to do things, but my intentions are not always effective. In fact, they might produce the opposite result of what I intend. I might say something else to my son. Three. Now, dependent on the context, you might think, that has no meaning. Uh, that's a number, and that has no bearing on the context that we're talking about. But if you were my son, you know that if I get down to zero, it's bad news, right? So that number, that word that I spoke, communicates something very, very clear to him. Now again, it might be, I better launch off this table before he gets to zero, because then I'll at least get a head start and can run away, right? So I'm communicating with my words. I'm trying to do things with my words. But my words are not always effective. And my intentions are not always received rightly. But the Spirit of God, He is a good communicator. I mean, you think about the first human words that are uttered in all creation were spoken by God. You go back to Genesis chapter 1. Who's the first speaker? It's God. He knows how to speak. He knows how to speak effectively. And He knows how to speak with the right intentions for his good and wise purposes. His words do not fail. They may just not be doing what we expect them to do. Illumination is rightly seen then as the Spirit's witness to revelation and not additional revelation. This is key. The Spirit of God does not add to the revelation itself as though you need some more information that God has seen fit to withhold from the last 2,000 years of church history. It's like, man, really try to extend that kingdom to the ends of the earth. But I got to wait till 2023 when Jonah over there prays at his bedside at the university. Then I can drop this bomb on him and the church is going to blow up. Like, that's not, that's not what's going on in heaven, right? Like, the Spirit's not like, man, i got to wait before I get some more revelation out there. No, like, He has spoken. We have all that we need for life and godliness. We have a completed canon of Scripture. We have all the revelation that we need because we have Christ. So what is the Spirit doing in illumination? He's shining a light on what He has already revealed. The Spirit shines light on the shadowy parts of Scripture where the Son of God is not as conspicuous. And since Jesus shows that He is the focus of the inspired Word, He is always the referent. He's always the main character, even when it's not immediately apparent. Let's do something really cool. Uh, you should be in 1 Corinthians 2. Flip back just a couple of pages to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'll give you the context as we're turning there. Uh, Pentecost has taken place. The Spirit of God 
poured out on the disciples in the upper room, and now they're proclaiming the wonders and signs of God in tongues that they don't normally speak, but the folks who are there for the feast hear them in their own languages, and they're kind of freaking out about it. They're like, what do these things mean? And some people are like, no, these dudes are drunk. They're on that new wine. And Peter gets up and is like, this is Aaron's paraphrase. He's like, bros, it's, it's 9 a.m. Like, we're not drunk, okay? Something way better is taking place. Okay, so in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching the gospel to the Jews who have gathered from all the nations under heaven. He's telling them about Jesus. But listen to this. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. All right, stop right there. Peter just quoted Psalm 16. And and David, very clearly, the context, he's, he's on the run for his life, and he's putting his hope in God that he will not die. You'll not abandon my soul to Hades. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. You're not going to let me die. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Uh Uh-oh. David's proclaiming, God, you're not going to let me die in this context, in this immediate circumstance. And Peter, apparently now biblical scholar, is saying, I don't know if you know this, but David's dead. And if you're listening to this, you're like, well, yeah, like, of course David's dead, but like, he didn't die then, like the scripture was fulfilled, God was faithful to his promise He preserved David's life. Listen to what Peter says. Being therefore a prophet, not a king, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on on his throne. Listen, this is a wild verse. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see what Peter just did? Peter just said, hey, you know that Bible that like you've read your whole life? You know that psalm that you probably learned when you were like four? What if I told you it's not really about David? That it's actually about Jesus Christ, and it's about his resurrection from the dead. Like, I don't think we can feel the kind of, like, ground being swept out from underneath you as what these men, devout men of faith, felt 
when Peter gets up to say, everything that you thought about your Bible now makes sense because of Jesus. This is what illumination does. It shows us that this book is about Him. It shows us that when we go to read these verses and these passages, who we are meeting in these pages is none other than Christ Himself. So what does this doctrine look like in practice as we land the plane? How can we go from this gathering together, uh, not just more informed in our minds, but in our practice as followers of Jesus? Just give you a couple of things. Illumination, we think about the, the beauty of special revelation that we have in the Word of God. Illumination deals with both the head, the heart, and the hands. As we read the Bible under the submission to the authority of God's Spirit, we will develop spiritual perception that informs and regulates our will. It's not just overcoming intellectual hurdles because we have sin in our minds, although it's not less than that. It's the light of God exposing us to the reality of the divine life and His Word that testifies to the Son of God who invites us to come and have life with Him. Now, illumination is not automatic. It's not like, God opened my eyes to behold everything in this book. And you're just like, I got it. That's not how it works. God has seen fit to use means. He uses the means of study and community and prayer and more. Listen to Greg Allison on this. The Spirit is not the light itself, nor does He merely provide help for understanding Scripture. He Himself is present and active in the reading and the studying and the meditating on, and the memorizing, and applying the Word of God. His personal presence, therefore, demands acknowledgement. Now, illumination is on the Word and in the church. So the Word of God speaks a harmonious word to His people throughout time and space. And illumination is tightly connected to the doctrine of the church. It's among us as the body of Christ that the light of Christ shines, particularly as the Word is brought to bear in preaching. So, so get this, if every believer has the Spirit, then the believer's church is a powerful location for the work of illumination. God doesn't always just illumine His Word to a believer only for their sake. So, so perhaps God illumines something in the Word of God to you, and leads to a biblical insight so that when you go to MCG tomorrow night and you share that, that person across the room from you goes, and that's exactly what I needed to hear. Like your faithfulness to run after Christ in His Word is not just for your sake. In fact, it may be that your brothers and sisters around you depend on it. And the Spirit of God has seen fit to unite us as a body of Christ, members of one body together, so that we might come together as that body for mutual health and mutual growth. And that means that our current context is relevant to the doctrine of illumination. The Spirit of God meets a church wherever and whenever she is, taking that objective Word of God and bringing it to bear on the people of God. Now, I'm not the Spirit, but perhaps an illuminating application of this message tonight 
is that you and I might have a better handle on what it is that we actually do when we gather together to hear the Word. Maybe you come for a whole host of different reasons, and they're probably not bad reasons. But there is a primary reason why you and I as believers gather together to worship God under the authority and power of His Word. It's so that we might see Him and know Him and worship Him as He is. We're here to know and love God. In the rhythms of life among the people of God, the illuminating Spirit is revealing the light of Christ in and through His body through this special revelation that He has given to you and me. I know that I think we're going to sing one more song or so. But I just want to encourage you to consider as you think about this school year, as you think about getting really firm in your convictions on what it is that this word is, you might see it maybe more clearly than before as a priceless treasure. Because in it, you meet the God of heaven. You meet the creator that the creation proclaims. You meet the redeemer who has made a way for you to know him. And that salvation, that life can be found in no other name. So I pray that by the power of the Spirit of God, you might, I might, continue to run after this special revelation. That we might behold His glory in that word and respond in the worship that that God is due.